Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. To the good stuff this morning. Let's turn to the Word of God. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the gospel of Mark. And we are about to see, uh, we're about to read Jesus. Um, inform his disciples for the third time as to what is about to take place. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we um, look now together this morning to the cross, as we um, consider the significance of your work on the cross, I, I ask, Lord, that we would be reminded this morning of what you accomplished there. Lord, we can grow, as we prayed earlier, so complacent, and we can forget so quickly how great a salvation we've received. And Lord, we don't want to forget. We don't want to grow complacent. We don't want to stop running the race, fighting the good fight of faith. And so would you remind us this morning together, not just of the events of the cross, but the significance of what took place there, that we would together marvel at it, that we would be filled with gratitude and joy as we consider what you accomplished on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our goal together this morning as we look at this text is not to look necessarily at the individual events of Jesus' death and resurrection. We, we will come to that in the gospel according to Mark when we get there. But what I'd like for us to do is, is not look at the events so much as look to the significance. Look at the significance of what took place in Jesus' life and his death on the cross. And to, to 
kind of get there, for that to be our goal, I think it would be helpful for us to start our time together in Hebrews chapter 12. So would you, uh, if you would, turn your, in your Bible there to Hebrews chapter 12, and let's, let's start with this. In Hebrews chapter 12, um, the writer of Hebrews for a chapter and a half has been uh, uh, recounting all of these faithful saints that have gone before us and had gone before the Hebrew readers. He, he, he is explaining all of those that had remained faithful and he is recounting these, uh, these stories in order to encourage the Hebrews and by way of scripture to encourage us to continue on in the race, to run the race that is set before us. And in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, not just those around us, but those that have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to fight the good fight of, the, of faith, to continue on in the race, to not grow complacent, to not grow weary, but to live in light of uh, the good news, the gospel into which we have been called. You know as well as I do that to continue in the faith is hard. To follow after Christ and to put to death the sin in our lives is a challenge. To remain in the faith feels like a battle every single day of our lives. And we see throughout scripture this tension constantly of this inward struggle that we all experience in reality every single day. And the writer of Hebrews is, is essentially saying, hey, don't give up. Don't give up. Fight the good fight of faith, as the Apostle Paul would say. There's imagery in Scripture of, of us being like a good soldier who is singularly devoted in, to the call that he has been called to. To be devoted to his service. To not be entangled in civilian duties. Paul also uses the imagery of an athlete, of that of an Olympian that is disciplined and training in such a way that when the time comes to run the race that he uh, that we are able to run as if we actually want to win that we actually want to get to the finish line that we are determined that is the key word that we are determined to get to the end of this where we will finally know perfect and eternal rest in the presence of our Lord and our Savior but it is a fight, it is a challenge, it is a long road ahead. And if we are to continue on, we cannot do that by looking to our own strengths. 
How many of you know that when it comes to spiritual things, when it, when it comes to our maturing and our sanctification, that if we look at our own actions, all we see are failures? Can I get a hearty amen or am I alone in that? When we do our self-examination, which can be helpful in the right context, but when we look at our own accomplishments, really all we end up seeing is our failures. Our failures to remain faithful, our failures to be diligent in Bible study, our failures to pray as we are called to pray, our, our, our failures across the board to do the very things that Christ has called us into that we know full well we ought to be doing. We so frequently find ourselves living the very life that we lived before Christ called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But if we look to our own accomplishments, we will always see failure. Which is why if we are to endure and if we are to run the race that was set before us, as the writer of Hebrews says, we ought not to look just to our, at all of, to our accomplishments, but look to Christ. We are to look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the author in that he is the originator of our faith, that it flows from him. It, comes, it starts with him and comes from him. And he is the perfecter of our faith, meaning that it is perfectly accomplished, that on the cross there was nothing left undone that his salvific work for you and I was fully and completely and totally accomplished. That there was nothing left undone, nothing that Jesus forgot to do, nothing that the cross did not accomplish in regards to God's plan from eternity past to save and ransom a people for himself. He is the author of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. And as he began to look forward towards the cross and as he endured the cross, Jesus did it with an attitude of determination. Determination. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. The joy, of course, that was set before him is what was accomplished on the cross. The glory of God the Father in saving and in ransoming a people. God is glorified in our salvation. You recognize that the primary purpose behind God saving you and I is for the renown and the glory of his name. And so he is made much of on the cross. And Jesus is setting his mind towards that end. God is also glorified in his justice being rightly displayed on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. And the wrath of God that was due for us was placed upon him. This is why we say that Jesus is the propitiation of our sin, which means that the wrath of God is satisfied towards us in Christ's sacrifice. And God is glorified in that. He is glorified in every aspect of Christ's life and his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And so Jesus, as he is looking forward to the cross, is determined because 
what was about to take place had been foreordained before God laid the foundations of the world. The very purpose of Jesus' life, the very reason for his coming, was what took place on that cross. And so, oh, that you and I this morning would lift up our gaze as the writer of Hebrews encourages us to do. Lift our eyes up off of ourselves, up off of our circumstances, up off of our current condition, and fix our gaze upon Christ. Fix our gaze upon our Savior, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. For two reasons, so that we would not grow weary as the persecution perhaps and the suffering perhaps that will most likely be increasing and that Christians all over the world in the past and present and in the future have endured, but that we may very well endure as well, that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted, but then also as we fight the good fight of faith, as we endure, as we run the race, that we would not grow weary because our eyes are fixed on Christ. Jesus had a singular determination, a singular determination. He was fixed on the events that were to come. And so we read this morning in our text that as they set out on the road to Jerusalem and as they make their way on that journey up 2,500 feet in elevation to where the city of Jerusalem is at. Jesus is heading towards his death. He is heading towards the cross. And we will look together, if the Lord allows, and we get to those passages of Scripture, we, we will see those events as they unfold. We'll, we will see his triumphant in, entry. We will see his betrayal. We will see his mock trial we will see him turned over to the Romans. We will, we will watch all of that and look at the, we will read about all of that and consider those events individually. But this morning, what we see is Jesus preparing his disciples for those events that would take place. And we find our Lord determined to get to Jerusalem as we've just been talking about. And we read in our text this morning that as they are on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking ahead of them. He is determined to get there. And he is walking at a, most likely a faster pace than everyone else. And so you have the disciples trying to keep up and you have the crowd behind him that are also on a pilgrimage. They are on a, a journey to Jerusalem as well for the Passover celebration, but they have fallen way behind Jesus. And the crowd apparently is terrified because they know that perhaps uh, some not so good things are about to take place when Jesus arrives. They don't know what's going, going to happen, but they know that the last few times that Jesus has been in Jerusalem, things have not gone well. They have sought to kill him. They have tried to stone him. They have sought to put him to death, not because he was a, a political threat, as much as he had claimed to be the very son of God. And so they sought to kill him. And the crowd is fearful and they are lagging behind, but we see the disciples amazed. They're amazed. 
And that word that is translated amazed does not describe them just being in awe or enamored with Jesus' confidence. They're not impressed in that sort of way. They're not saying, wow, isn't it wonderful how determined Jesus is? How, isn't it impressive how he just doesn't have any fear? He's going to Jerusalem no matter the consequences. They are amazed in the sense that they are perplexed. They are bewildered. They are confused. Why, why would you go to the very place where you are most likely to be put to death? How are you to establish your kingdom? How, how are you to rule and to reign if you go to the very place where your enemies are seeking to kill you and they have the resources and the ability to do just that? They are amazed and perplexed because he is walking with determination towards the city of Jerusalem. He is on a mission because the very reason for which he came is, is not far away. It's not far away. And he is ready for it to be accomplished. Because he knows, because he is the omniscient son of God, and he also knows all that the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied about him, he knows exactly what is about to take place. He knows that he will be betrayed and turned over to the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes. He knows that they will condemn him to death in a mock trial and they will turn him over to the Romans, which are who he says the gent are the Gentiles. The Gentiles in scripture are all of the peoples, the people groups that are outside of God's chosen nation of Israel. So you and I, if we're not from uh, Jewish descent, are Gentiles. The Romans were Gentiles. And the Romans ha were occupying that whole region and at the time much of the world. And they had the ability to do what the Jews could not, and that is to execute Jesus in a horrific way, in a very public way. So Jesus knew that he would be betrayed, that he would be turned over to the scribes and Pharisees, that they would condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Romans. And the Romans would mock him. They would spit on him. They would flog him or whip him until the flesh is gone from his backside as they strip him naked first and most likely did the same to his front as well. And then they would place the crossbar of the cross around his arms, force him to carry it up the hill and they would put him to death. But that is not the end of Jesus' statement to his disciples, is it? He goes on to say that after all of that suffering, after all of that hardship that I must endure takes place, three days later, the Son of Man will rise. The Son of Man will rise. He knows that all of this is about to take place. And it is for that reason that he heads towards Jerusalem with such determination. Such determination. This is the third and this is the final time that Jesus will warn or let his disciples know what are, what's about to take place. We read Jesus' prediction in, or his 
informing the disciples in Mark chapter 8. We read another one in Mark chapter 9. And now here in Mark chapter 10, we see his final instruction as he foretells what is going to take place to his disciples. Except what we see this time is far more detail. He knew exactly what was going to take place because he knew exactly what must take place. From eternity past, God had set in motion a plan to take a rebellious and sinful people, you and I, who we once were. And he planned that the very Son of God would take upon himself human flesh, becoming truly man and remaining truly God. And that on the cross, he would be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. This is a plan before the beginning of time that you and I would be reconciled back to God. That even in our hostility, even in our rebellion, even as enemies of God who in our former lives hated God, he set forth this plan for our redemption. So that just as sin entered the world through one man, so righteousness through one man, the righteous, the many will be made righteous. This is the purpose of Jesus coming. This is the purpose of his earthly life and ministry. It is all culminating here in just a little while on the cross. And Jesus had always known this. When we look back in scripture, we see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And as his parents lose him, we see him in the temple. And what does he say? He says, don't you know that I will be about my father's business? Jesus knew his whole life the reason why he came, the reason why he was here. And it was all about to culminate on that cross. Jesus knew it, but his disciples most certainly did not. He has reminded them three times and they still don't quite get it. He has revealed as the cross is getting closer more and more detail about his crucifixion. But we will even look next week at James and John asking Jesus just after his prediction here or after him saying that he's headed to the cross, them asking him to grant them to sit on his right and left hand. At this point, the disciples are really still of no help at all. They are, they are arrogant. They are prideful. They are missing the point. They are cowardly. And so Jesus is preparing them, but he's really not preparing them to do anything. There's really nothing that they can do. The disciples play absolutely no role in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're not to protect him. They're not to 
stand in his way. They're, they're not to aid in any way. They, they are bystanders in a way, except for one thing. The 12 disciples, minus Judas, will become his apostles. They will become his apostles, meaning that they will be eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, to his death, and to his resurrection, and then they will give their very lives for the proclamation of the truth of those events. And so they are there, but they are eyewitnesses alone, and they're really of no other help. We, we see here very soon in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying to his father just before his betrayal and his arrest. And what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. And then Jesus comes and he is arrested and there's a little bit of a skirmish, but, a skirmish, but then what happens? The disciples flee and they run for their lives. And then Peter, of course, denies the Lord three times before the rooster crows. So he is preparing them, but he's not really preparing them to do anything. In fact, it's not until the day of Pentecost that we see a change in the 12 apostles. They have been granted faith, certainly, even at this point. We've, we saw that a long time ago in, in Mark, that Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And you remember what Jesus said to him. He said, blessed are you, Peter, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out in your brain, but my Father has revealed this to you. And so there is a salvific sort of work going on. They are being granted the ability to see. They're, they're being granted faith, as it were, by the Spirit. But it is not till the day of Pentecost where God sends the Holy Spirit to empower his church, that we see the disciples go from cowards to speaking boldly and plainly the good news of the gospel. And that strength and that courage and that confidence obviously does not come from them. But it is a work taking place in them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so at this point, they, they are really just a bunch of cowards who really don't get it. So Jesus is preparing them to inform them so that when all of these events take place and they look back at the course of events, they will know that this is exactly what Jesus had foretold them to them would happen. The events that we will look at here in the next couple weeks is Jesus being delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and there it will be a mock trial. First, in the middle of the night, he will be taken and he will be already condemned to death. And then in the morning, there will be a charade. There will be this fake trial in which they can make up a public sort of scene to really try to save their own reputations as Jesus is condemned to death. And then they will turn him over to the Romans. The Romans, as they get their hands on Jesus, will treat him with the same sort of gruesome behavior that they often treated criminals. They will make a mockery of him. They will place on him a crown of thorns and a purple robe on his back. 
They will say to him, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mocking sort of way. The events of a crucifixion were so gruesome, the Romans had perfected it to a level that they were experts in crucifixion. They weren't the originators of crucifixions. Of course, it had existed in other cultures, but they perfected it. And in fact, it was so horrific that if you were a Roman citizen, no matter what you did, you would never be crucified. It was considered such a heinous way to execute someone that it was, it was reserved for foreigners and for slaves and for criminals of the lowest kind. And that is the very kind of death that God's, that his very people turned him over to. On the cross, our Savior would hang in agony. He would suffer in pain. He would endure the wrath of God all for the sake of his people. This did not happen to him. Jesus is not the victim of his crucifixion. You remember what he said. Nobody takes my life from me but I lay it down on my own accord. He's not a victim of the cross. He gladly is determined to get to the cross for the joy that was set before him. And the gruesome nature of the cross, his suffering for our sake, is just like what we see predicted about him. Let's consider that together for just a moment. In Isaiah 53 we read Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering of Christ. Let's read that together. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's good for us to remember that Jesus was not sorrowful and full of grief just on the cross, but every moment of his earthly ministry was filled with grief. You remember when he looks down on the city of Jerusalem and he sees their unbelief and he weeps over them. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They have made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Notice Isaiah turning the corner from the grief and the pain that the Savior must endure to the joy that is set before him. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. It is important for us to do exactly what Hebrews 12 has instructed us to do and to fix our gaze upon him. Because church, listen to me. It is easy to forget what Christ has accomplished. It is easy for us to forget the significance of the cross. It is easy for us to forget the weightiness of it, the horror of it, and the beauty of what took place on the cross. We're no better than the people of Israel who, while Moses was on the mountain, speaking with God on their behalf, they were down fearfully creating an idol to worship. And we see all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, though the very presence of God was there with them, forgetting and complaining and grumbling and questioning God, though he provided for them, though he led them, how quickly did they forget God's deliverance? He delivered them out of Egypt, provided for them, he led them into the promised land, and he delivered them time and time again, provided for them time and time again, and yet how quickly and consistently did they forget what the Lord had done and what the Lord was doing? Church, listen, we are no better at remembering what God has done than they. It is so easy for us to grow complacent, to grow so familiar with the cross, so familiar with the gospel that we no longer sense the weightiness of it. And and therefore, we stop running the race. And we in our our own walks, we, we spend 
weeks, months, years, for some decades in the same exact place that we were 10 years ago. We have, by all outward evidence, not matured, not grown, not been conformed more into the image of Christ. And we know that we are stagnant in our faith. And in fact, some of us have grown cold in our faith. And we no longer have a deep affection for Christ and for what he has done for us. Could it be that we have long taken our gaze off of Christ and off of what he has accomplished for us fully and completely and totally on the cross? My intention for us this morning is to not look just at the events of the cross, not just the progression of one thing leading to the next, but for you and I this morning to feel the weightiness of it, the significance of the cross. And Lord, help us to not forget, but to remember what he has done. A couple things about his death on the cross. It's good for us to know. First is that Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice to God. He was a sa- it was a sacrifice to God. Though they had tried many times, he was not put to death until the appointed time. It was necessary that Jesus would be executed at the very time that the lambs throughout all of Jerusalem were being sacrificed and killed for the Passover, that the great, that the final sacrifice, the pure and spotless lamb that is, who is totally and completely capable of satisfying and paying in full for our sin was sacrificed on that cross. Jesus' death was a sacrifice to God a perfect sacrifice, a complete sacrifice, the final sacrifice, which is why Hebrews tells us that no longer do the priests stand day after day making sacrifices, but Christ, who is the sacrifice and the great high priest, made a sacrifice once for all and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. His death was a sacrifice, but it was not for himself, but rather was for us. His death was substitutionary. And I know that most of us, we we know that, but that's kind of exactly my point. We, We know it in the way of, yeah, I know that. But that's different than really knowing it. Do you understand the difference? There's a, there's a difference between being able to communicate doctrines like a good seminary student. There's one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, and this is how it all ties together. It's one thing to know that Jesus' death is substitutionary, and it is another thing to know and to understand that his death was a substitutionary one for your sake. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one taking on sin and the sinful taking on the perfect righteousness of Christ. We, I don't think we'll ever in this life fully grasp that. I think that we will always struggle no matter how much we know, no matter how much scripture we have memorized, we will always struggle to understand what it means that the eternal Son of God bore our sin. That is exactly what he did. And he did it for the joy set before him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ's death was a sacrifice. His death was substitutionary for our sakes. His death on the cross was an act of obedience to God. And his death on the cross was something that he gladly and willingly endured. So that is why, as Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, he's walking faster than everyone else. Because what he was about to accomplish is the most pivotal moment in all of history. It is the moment that he has been waiting for since the beginning of time. And it is the moment in history that every day from that moment forward, all into eternity for the elect will make the, the difference. It is in that moment that the people of God will be reconciled back to God for the glory of God and for the eternal and everlasting joy of those that he has saved. So Jesus was looking forward to that. He was determined to get to that moment because in that moment, his work would be accomplished. Which is why on the cross, the very last thing that he said was, it is finished. It is finished. If you were there 2,000 years ago, it's very likely that you would not have known who, what was, who was being paraded through the streets you may very well have just thought that you were witnessing a political rebel who was being executed to protect the political and cultural interests of Israel, that the Romans would not view Jesus as a, the uprising of a king who might lead the people in a rebellion, and so they sought to put him to death to protect their culture. You might have seen it the way that Caiaphas saw his death, who was the great, the high priest that year. 
he said, it is right that the one should die for the many. He had no idea what he was saying. Again, he thought that the death of Jesus would protect the many people of Israel. But he was actually prophesying that through the death of Christ that the many would be made righteous. That in his death would be the death of death. The sting of death would be removed and for his people we will know eternal and everlasting life. On that cross was not a political rebel, but on that cross was the pure and spotless Lamb of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And the chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed so church may we not faint or grow weary but as we run the race and fight the good fight of the faith may we do so by looking to Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith who with determination for the joy that was set before him endured the cross